You know, we have a tendency to overlook Old Testament books like Leviticus and Numbers and the Minor Prophets, except for Jonah, which Taylor preached on a couple of months ago. Uh, the pages of the Minor Prophets show less wear on our scriptures. If we look at the edges of them, there's a clean spot there at the end of the Old Testament. That's the Minor Prophets. They're like flyover country of the scriptures. You know, we, we only get there, pass over them to get to someplace else. But remember, when Jesus showed those very disciples, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, on the road to Emmaus, that all scripture pointed to him, all that he had were texts from the Old Testament. Like every book, Habakkuk has a unique place in the flow of redemptive history. It reveals God's preservation of his people and faithfulness to his covenant, even in the face of impending judgment. But it also teaches us important truths about God's nature and purpose and how we are to respond in the face of circumstances beyond our understanding and control. Hear the word of the Lord. Taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and Habakkuk 3, 17, 19, very uh, well-known verses out of Habakkuk. Uh, you can find the book at page 785 in your pew Bible if you're using the pew Bible. Habakkuk 2, 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 19, probably the, the most famous passage from Habakkuk, one that uh, Pastor Dennis alluded to earlier this morning. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let us pray. God, our Father, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Four weeks ago, I had the uh, joy of officiating my oldest daughter's wedding down along Yorktown Beach. Now, one of the verses she and her husband selected for their readings is the, providentially turned out to be the primary text for this message this morning. Actually, my daughter was very specific about what she wanted me to read at her uh, and preach on at her wedding, and this was one of them. And I'd already been studying the passage for this. Now, they weaved its theme into the vows they wrote. In fact, the, the title of the message is actually taken from two segments of their vows that they wrote. They were acknowledging that for better or for worse, whatever the future may hold, we must live by faith in the sovereign goodness of God. Life is full of twists and turns. Many, uh, many of those uh, have pleasant results, but some bring sorrow, pain, and spiritual struggle. Facing the imminent invasion of the southern kingdom by Ju in, of Judah by the Chaldeans at the end of the 6th century BC, Habakkuk lived in that latter set of circumstances. In the face of this certain judgment, 
Habakkuk records his spiritual crisis. What did the prophet see that led him to struggle, and how did he resolve that struggle? We will examine the answer to those two questions by considering three points, each one corresponding to one of the chapters in Habakkuk. First, the prophet's perplexing problem of faith, and the Lord's gracious revelation of his wisdom, and the prophet's praise-filled psalm of submission. First, let's consider the prophet's perplexing problem of faith, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The, the, Christ, the prophet's crisis of faith centered on two perplexing problems. And in this first chapter, he openly and honestly seeks the Lord to express his deep concerns. The dialogue that occurs here is basically an argument, a little bit like what we see between Job and God in the book of Job. Habakkuk's first problem was... Why did God allow the wickedness of Judah to go unpunished? All around him, the prophet saw the proud flourishing. And he saw God's people violating his covenant by engaging in all forms of violence and injustice and sin. In chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, So the law is slacked and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And in spite of repeated calls of repentance from the prophets that had gone before him, the children of God did not fear the Lord nor turn back to him. Meanwhile, the remnant who still trusted God was oppressed and persecuted. But even more disturbing, Habakkuk saw that God seemingly was doing nothing about it. In his mind, he saw all this going on and he was questioning God about why he allowed his people to go so far astray. The Lord responds by telling him that he sees their wickedness and that he's in the process of doing something big about it. But God's startling answer is even more troubling to Habakkuk. God will use the Chaldeans as his instrument of judgment. That prompts Habakkuk's second problem in her text. How can a righteous God use a nation even more wicked as his instrument of judgment? I mean, the Babylonians were a proud, violent, and conquering people who did not worship the one true God of the scriptures. Yet, they appeared to be prospering and gaining more and more power as they gobbled up most of the Middle East during their, their reign. Sure, God's people were guilty, and they deserved judgment. Habakkuk didn't deny that. But the Chaldeans, they exhibited even greater pride and greater violence and greater idolatry than Judah. So even if the Lord was using the Chaldeans as his instrument of righteous judgment, Habakkuk wants to know from God, would he allow them to keep on mercilessly, mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk stands upon a watchtower waiting on the Lord for the only thing that can resolve his tensions. That is a revelation from God. So let's consider that. The second chapter of Habakkuk deals all about the Lord's gracious revelation of wisdom. The prophet has been debating with God, so he kind of braces for a stern rebuke. I mean, if you were in his position and you had just been debating with God, you might expect some blowback from God, um, a little bit more like what happened to Job. You know, Job got... Uh, challenged by God, well, where were you when I created 
But God doesn't give Habakkuk a stern rebuke. Instead, he gives a gentle disclosure of God's purpose and character. There are two groups of people on God's radar in this passage. And he promises to deal with each one appropriately. The second text that I read for us is verse 2 in chapter 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That is a passage, by the way, that's quoted three times in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul and by the writer of the book of Hebrews. It's one that we're very familiar with. And that in the first group that God considers are the proud. God describes that group as those whose souls are puffed up and are not upright within them. Now, he's primarily speaking about the Chaldeans here. There's a prophecy about, in that second chapter, about what's going to happen to the Chaldeans. And God pronounces five woes upon them, five things that will happen to them in the future as of God's righteous judgment against them. He says that those who plunder others will be plundered. Chaldeans had plundered nations mercilessly, and God said, in the end, they themselves will find them that they are going to be plundered. Those who seek security and economic gain at the expense of others will be shamed and forfeit everything. They'll lose it all in the end. So those who unrighteously try to gain uh, economic advantage and security will find themselves with nothing. Those who seek to build their fame on the back of others will end up amounting to nothing. Those who shame and humiliate others will themselves be shamed and humiliated. And finally, those who worship idols will find that in the end, those idols cannot save or deliver them. Certainly, Habakkuk's prophecy of judgment is rooted in the historical events surrounding the Chaldean conquest and exile of Judah. The Lord is aware of the Chaldean sinfulness. They will not escape ultimate judgment. That's what the five woes are about. But Judah is also guilty of the same offenses and must first be judged at their hands. Beyond this immediate prophetic horizon, the book has a more universal tone that points toward a greater future judgment, a judgment of all the peoples and nations of the earth at the Messiah's return. Most prophetic books have that, those horizons. There's that immediate horizon where we see the prophecy um, in the context of the events of Israel. But then there's that other horizon, and you'll see them in all the prophets, where there's something just a little bit over the edge of those events, maybe a long way over the edge of those events. And in Habakkuk, there is that horizon. In fact, Habakkuk is really kind of an odd book for the, in the prophets because in most of the prophetic books, you'll see a great deal of call to repentance and turning away and hopes that the judgment will be averted. Habakkuk does none of that because at this point, God's judgment is certain. Habakkuk is simply delivering the message that this will happen. And we know that there will be a judgment of all the peoples and nations of the earth at the Messiah's return. None of us can escape the righteous judgment of a holy God except by his gracious, unmerited redemption. And ultimately, he will redeem his people in spite of their sin 
through the person and work of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. That second group of people that God considers in this text are the righteous. Now, the Lord recognizes that though the nation of Judah has broken his covenant, there is a faithful remnant that remains. There always has been in the history of the church. Even beyond the pages of the New Testament, God has always had a faithful remnant of his people. He describes this remnant as the righteous, those who live by faith. The Lord predicts the inevitable destruction of Jerusalem. It is going to happen. It's a certainty. And the exile of Judah, and beyond that, the destruction of the Chaldeans. But the judgments are different. In the long run, the Chaldeans will be totally destroyed. Their empire will cease to exist. However, a remnant of Judah will be saved. Why? For it is through their, her descendants that the righteous judge and savior, Jesus the Messiah, will come and fully save his people. Sometimes there's a lot of things in the text of the Old Testament where, that's, where God is simply reminding us that he is going to be faithful to his covenant regardless of the fact that his people are not and that he's going to redeem those people by saving a faithful remnant so those promises of the coming Messiah will hold true, and Jesus came. Jesus came to fully save his people, and in the coming judgment, the righteous will suffer alongside the unrighteous. The people who are faithful to God in Judah at this time, they will suffer the same things that those who are unrighteous will suffer, because they they are in that group of they're in that covenant group of people. They are parts of the of God's people, Judah. God does not spare the faithful from the consequences of the coming catastrophe. Habakkuk understands this. And he causes and it causes him to tremble at the prospect of what he and those around him will face. He probably assumes that his own life will be forfeit as a result of the judgment that's coming. But he knows there is hope for those who hold firm in their trust in God and respond in faith during a season of calamity. Everybody in Judah was a sinner, even the righteous. But there is hope in God's mercy. In his mercy, we see the seed of the gospel that will be fully revealed at Christ's coming, his first coming. It is at the cross that people will be declared righteous and justified. Habakkuk, I don't know that he had a clear picture of all that. I'm sure he didn't. We have a lot clearer picture on this side of the cross because we have the revelation of the New Testament that helps us to understand and see the context of the old. But Habakkuk nonetheless knew that there was mercy, and we see in that mercy the seeds of the gospel. Third and finally, let's consider the prophet's praise-filled psalm of submission in chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Now, in response to God's revelation of his purpose, Habakkuk praises God's person Verses 1 through 3. His power, verses 4 through 12, chapter 3. 
and his plan, verses 13 to 19, in which our text comes. Now, nothing has changed the circumstances. Nothing has changed the circumstances from chapter 1 to verse 3, right? Circumstances have not changed. Judah will be judged. God's people will be put in exile. Many will die in sometimes horrible ways. God's judgment is still coming, and Habakkuk is still terrified of that judgment. But the prophet has a heart change somewhere between chapters 1 and 3. He will place his faith in God's sovereign goodness in spite of the coming calamity and will worship him. This is not a blind leap of faith or some sort of naive denial of reality. Habakkuk fully knows what will happen. But Habakkuk trusts God because he looks back and remembers God's faithfulness. And he looks up to see the evidence of God's presence and power in his creation. That allows him to move past his limited perception of God and grow in his understanding of who God is and what he is doing in the world. Whenever I struggle with something that's going on in my own life or the life of the wor- in the world and you turn the news on and it's always it's there, it's usually because I have an incomplete perspective on God. And maybe, even though I understand it here theologically in my head, who God is, I really don't understand it deep into my heart and in my experience. The Lord's character and his past redemptive work gives Habakkuk, gives us confidence in the goodness of God's plan and hope in a time of despair. The prophet's words here are meant to prepare God's people to accept what they cannot fully understand. Even the possibility of exile or death. Habakkuk knows that in the judgment at the end of days, God will restore all things. Justice and righteousness will prevail, and that's good enough for him. We know that ultimately Jesus defeated death and judgment at the cross. And at the last judgment, he will set all things right. But not all things will be set right in this life. As a soldier, and particularly as an army chaplain, I've stood by people in some very difficult times. I've been in an emergency room, called back early from a date with Kathy, to stand with a unit first sergeant and his wife as a doctor explained to them that his youngest teenage daughter had taken her own life. I've stood in the small hours of the morning with young soldiers in training whose fellow trainees were killed when a helmet that a soldier was using to chase a bee because he was allergic to bees out of the armor personnel carrier that he was in with his other fellow soldiers dropped the helmet into the gearbox and flipped the armor personnel carrier killing several of them, just a week before the graduation. I have stood at a family's door with a notification officer who was there to inform them that a loved one has died in one of of our wars or in a tragic accident, like many of the ones you read about in the papers these days. 
There are times that the circumstances of life appear to contradict what we think we know about God's purpose and power to achieve it. The humble response is to recognize that we cannot always understand God's plans and purposes. And that in spite of appearances, God is still on the throne. And that no matter what he brings to pass, we will trust in him. Neither the great affairs of the world nor the details of our lives are determined by blind fate, but only by the holy, righteous, and good God of the covenant. Like Habakkuk, we don't rejoice in the pain in the sorrow for the pain and the sorrow. But in spite of it, because we are convinced of the sovereign goodness of God. There is pain and difficulty here. There was pain and difficulty in Habakkuk's day. He wasn't ignoring the pain. He wasn't ignoring the reality of the struggle. He recognized that God, and we should recognize that God may not rescue us from the, our circumstances. There is a kind of a popular theology out in evangelical circles that somehow God will rescue us from every bad circumstance that possibly could happen to us. It's just not promised to us. But he will get us through it. That we are promised. But even if he should allow us to die, even that death is under God's control and will only occur if he so directs and will bring us into his presence. What could be worse? I mean, that could be better than that. Couldn't be anything worse than that, right? The worst that they could do to us is kill us. But for the believer, that brings us into the presence of God. Like Habakkuk, the Lord asks us to put our faith in his sovereign goodness. Now, how do we do that? How do we get to that point like Habakkuk did? Well, it's much more than positive thinking or putting a good spin on things. Approaches that depend on us to drum up hope in our own strength. You know, those kind of approaches depend on us somehow to just lift it up outside, inside of us. And there may be some people who can do that for a time. But I must guarantee you that everyone will face some circumstance which they will not be able to do it on their own and not drum up that positive spin on things. As Pastor Joe Nobinson, um, PCA pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian, often says, Everyone thinks the feel of faith is strength. When in reality, in reality, the feel of faith is weakness. That's reminiscence of Paul's words, are they not? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We come in humble weakness, like the prophet Habakkuk. We seek the Lord with honest prayer about our concerns and the struggles of our hearts. God wants to hear our honest struggles for our hearts. Then we wait. And we listen for God to speak as we read and study and hear his word, which is why we need to read and study and hear his word. Because that's how God speaks to us today. And so we bring those things before him, like Habakkuk, and then we wait. Like he did upon the watchtower, it says, in chapter 2. 
then seeing the trustworthiness of his character, seeing the reach of his power, seeing the faithfulness of his promises and the loving end of his plans, we worship him as an act of faith, even when things seem tragically inexplicable. That's what Habakkuk did. Came to the Lord with honest seeking, waited on the Lord to speak to him, and then seeing the trustworthiness of God's character, his power, his faithfulness, he worships, even in the midst of that context, as an act of faith. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there will be no fruit on the vine. Those are basic things and then luxury things, if you read through that passage. They were, but they were, they were reminiscent of the disaster that was coming, and yet Habakkuk said, yet I will trust in the Lord. In the end, we must vow, like I, like I said earlier on in the beginning, we must vow, for better or for worse, whatever the future may hold, we must live by faith in the sovereign goodness of God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, there are times when the lines fall for, to, to us in pleasant places, like the scriptures talk about. But there are also times when, like Habakkuk and, uh, and, and like others throughout the history of your people, when things happen that are just tragic or inexplicable from our perspective. We don't want to deny the reality of the pain and the suffering, but we do want to affirm the reality of your presence and the fact that you promise that we can live by faith in your sovereign goodness, that you are good, that you will cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to trust in you, not only when times are good, but especially when times are difficult. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing hymn. So our final song is called By Faith. And as we face trial and uncertainty, God calls us to continue walking in the path he has set in front of us, even when we don't see how his plan can work out. Um, so this course begins, we are children of the promise, and that promise is that of a holy city built by God's own hand.